Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 112 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that the German DPA has issued guidance on the use of thermal imaging during the Top ID19 pandemic. We then travel to Northern Ireland where Tesco illustrate the difficulties of notifying staff of a positive Top ID19 test among their colleagues. And then staying on the subject of Top ID19, we look at home working and how you should carry out a data protection impact assessment for home working if you've not already carried one out. Then moving away from Top ID19, we have a report that the Department of Education has received a damning audit report from the ICO into its handling of personal data. We then move to a different government department where the Crown Prosecution Services annual report reveals that it has had over 1,500 data breaches in the last 12 months. We then have news of a data breach at document signing application DocSketch. We then have news that the Ardonna Group, which includes companies including Swinton Insurance and Towergate, has suffered a data breach. And then we're back in Ireland with news of a data breach at Limerick Hospital. We then travelled to the USA where Morgan Stanley had been fined $60 million after a data breach in the disposal of old computer equipment. We then look at a new consultation from the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, on whether you are a data controller, a data processor or joint controller. And finally this week we have a reminder that your DPO, your data protection officer, cannot be fired or indeed if an external DPO have a contract terminated simply because you don't like what their report says. So as usual a full range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information useful and informative. If you have any feedback for us please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback that we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your improvements into the show. However due to the volume of feedback that we receive it's not always possible to respond to each piece of feedback individually. This is an important coronavirus update. Stay home, protect our NHS. We begin this week with news that the German DPA has published its position on the use of thermal cameras and electronic temperature checks in the context of the Top ID-19 pandemic. Now, whilst at the moment these rules only apply in Germany, it's likely that they will be adopted by other DPAs across the EU and indeed the ICO here in the UK in the coming few days. So the German DPA originally voiced general criticisms of bodily temperature checking in context of COVID-19. However, it's now stated that it considers the use of thermal cameras in the workplace to be admissible, providing that the requirements of data protection by design laid down by Article 25 of GDPR and security data processing in line with Article 32 of GDPR are complied with. In detail, they say that the electronic temperature checks followed by documentation or recording are subject to GDPR. However, if you have someone at the entrance to your premises who holds a temperature gun to people's foreheads and doesn't record the actual data but simply decides whether that person can or cannot come into your workplace or your shop or your premises then that is not subject to GDPR because you're not recording personal information about that individual. However it does say that in public areas such as shopping malls and airports body temperature checks are not considered to be admissible. The DPA emphasises it does not consider automated body temperature checks to be adequate 
and necessary as an increased body temperature to not necessarily be regarded as a symptom of coronavirus, referring to the position of the Robert Koch Institute. From the authorities' point of view, for places like shopping centres and airports, there are less invasive and more effective measures, including enforcing the wearing of face masks, restricting access to stores, reminding people about social distancing, and so on. What the German DPA does point out is that body temperature checks cannot be based on consent under GDPR because it's usually difficult for consent to be freely given, in particular in places of employment. And they would argue that in some cases, the consent for temperature checks would not be shown to be adequately informed. When considering the use of temperature checks in the workplace, the DPA says that the thinking should be based on Articles 9.2.H and Article 9.3 of the GDPR. The authorities also recommend combining temperature measurement with health-related questions or an assessment of whether the employee has other symptoms of COVID-19. When using a thermal camera, controllers should ensure that the requirements of Articles 25 and 32 are GDPR complied with. In particular, the authorities recommend implementing the following settings. The operators are instructed to capture only certain body parts, such as the forehead and inner angles, as capturing the whole body is not necessary. They stress that any device you use should be checked for accuracy and there should be a definition of a threshold value triggering capture by the camera, i.e. the manufacturer or user of the camera should configure it in such a way that the camera only makes recordings or triggers an alarm if it detects an increased body temperature above 36.8 degrees Celsius or 98.1 degrees Fahrenheit. And it also recommends using security personnel to oversee the thermal cameras and detect the person with increased body temperature. So, to sum that up, it's really a case of making sure that the people carrying out the temperature checks are well trained, that they point the thermal device only at the forehead of the people being temperature checked, and that if you record that information in any way, then that does fall under GDPR, so you need to carry out a data protection impact assessment first, and make sure you follow GDPR standards to store that data. But if it's simply a yes-no, and you turn people away if they have a temperature that's too high, then you don't need to record those tests under GDPR. Stay in. Stay safe. To Northern Ireland now, and concerns have been raised after staff at the Tesco store in Portadown learnt of a colleague suffering from COVID via the WhatsApp messaging app. A member of staff at the Tesco superstore in Portadown tested positive for COVID-19, and colleagues at the outlet in the Meadows Shopping Centre have voiced concerns about how the information was relayed to them. In an internal WhatsApp message, senior store staff informed workers last Wednesday to try and keep things as calm as possible as we still have a business to run. The member of staff returned a positive test result at the start of last week. It's understood that the staff member works on the main floor in the grocery department. Tester explained that it could not reveal the identity of the confirmed case to the other shop workers due to GDPR and in keeping with confidentiality. The source said that Tesco management at Portadown had now stopped communicating via WhatsApp. The source added the store manager on Saturday finally addressed the situation with staff and said the cleaners were cleaning more frequently. A Tesco spokesperson said the safety of customers and colleagues is our top priority. We have introduced extensive measures across all of our stores to keep out, help keep everyone safe, including protective screens at every checkout, social distancing signage and regular deep cleaning. What's caused particular alarm in this case amongst the workers was that Given that the workers at the Portadown store worked in shifts, the management would not even reveal to the workers which shift was affected. Obviously, this caused some distress amongst all the staff working at the store. Now, our view on this is that, yes, the management was quite direct. GDPR does prevent the store management from 
revealing the name of the individual, as we've previously mentioned several times here on the GDPR Weekly Show. However, it would have allowed the management to identify which shift was involved so that the relevant team of workers could have been informed that they had been exposed, whereas the other two shifts of workers at the store would have not been exposed to the person who tested positive to COVID-19. So if you're an employer who finds yourself in this situation, we would suggest that you contact us here at helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com for advice, and we can inform you down to what level you can inform your staff, and indeed your visitors and customers, that they may have been exposed to COVID-19 without revealing the identity of the individual or individuals concerned. The serious nature of COVID-19 and how it affects your life. With definite evidence now that more and more companies are moving towards home working, we thought it was worth just putting together some questions which you should consider when carrying out a data protection impact assessment into home working against employees working in the office. And really, given the length of time that COVID has been around, you should have carried out this data protection impact assessment by now. But don't worry if you haven't. Just make sure that you put it on your list of things to do. Or if you'd like us to do it, then get in touch with us and we'd be delighted to carry out your data protection impact assessment for you. But the kind of questions that you should be asking are, can personal data be present on the devices in the employee's home? They're not just using the screen effectively as a dumb terminal to view data on your central system. They're actually holding the data on on their equipment. Is there sufficient physical security or do technological controls such as full disk encryption need to be put into place? If a personal device is being used, does it meet corporate requirements for antivirus and malware protection? And is it used by multiple family members? We would always say wherever possible, don't have your employees using their own equipment. Provide them with a company laptop to use or a company desktop PC to use because then you can ensure what antivirus and anti-malware software for example, is intruded on that PC. And you should instruct the employee in that case that they are the only family member who should be using that equipment. They shouldn't be letting their partner or their children use the equipment when they're not using it. If VPN technology is used, can it provide a route direct to your network? Are appropriate controls in place to ensure that the person signing in is authorised to do so? implementation of multi-factor authentication is strongly recommended regardless of whether you use a VPN or not. Is there increased risk due to internet usage on devices at home? Can you prevent access to sites hosting malware using the same policies that you would use in the office? Is there additional use of cloud-based storage or new software as a service systems that contain personal data? Don't just think about the laptop or electronic data though, think about paper data too. How is your employee going to store paperwork? Can it be stored safely and securely? And how are they going to dispose of it? Are you going to provide them with a cross-cut shredder? Are you going to say to them they need to bring it back to your premises every so often to be shredded? Or are you going to have a courier collect it and shred it? The other thing to look at, of course, is is the processing the same? Or are there new elements of data processing that have been brought in? Because your employees are now working remotely. And then turning to video conferencing, does the increased use of video conferencing require a change to your privacy policies or any new consent? Because remember, for example... You can't really control a video conferencing someone taking a screenshot, which then means they've got an image of your employees' faces, which your employees probably haven't consented to revealing in your employee privacy policy. Just a thought there, so you might want to check the wording of your employee privacy policy and reword it if necessary, 
and as always we're here to help if you would like us to. So having carried out that data protection impact assessment, what sort of things can you do to make your data more secure? Well obviously you can implement a VPN. You can also implement multi-factor authentication for all system access. You can ensure that each device has full disk encryption, so that if a device is lost or stolen, then having that disk encrypted could prevent the need to notify that data loss to the ICO. Having a mechanism to enforce corporate standards for devices connected to locations that could contain personal information and ensure that the appropriate antivirus and anti-malware protection is used and that disk encryption is in place. Consider using watermarking or labelling technologies to track personal information in documents. And just generally consider what systems you give people access to via remote access from their home. If you'd like help implementing any of this, then please just simply drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and we'd be delighted to get in touch with you and help you put the correct processes in place. And now, the rest of this week's news. Listeners in the UK will be aware that the Department for Education has had a bit of a torrid time during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly with regard to the awarding of exam results to young people. This week, the Department of Education found themselves in further trouble when details were revealed of a compulsory audit carried out by the ICO into the Department of Education's handling of data. Perhaps it was inevitable that when the government's world-beating COVID-19 test and trace system seems to fall at every hurdle, and it's discovered that for all the billions of pounds spent on it, it's using Excel spreadsheets for part of its data processing, then it's perhaps no surprise that other departments have their own data management problems. However, the cause of this compulsory audit by the ICO at the Department for Education stems back to 2019 when the Department for Education was the subject of complaints stemming from the Against Borders for Children ABC group for apparently sharing information relating to minors secretly with the UK Home Office. At the time, the ICO said that DFE is failing to comply fully with its data protection obligations primarily in the areas of transparency and accountability, where there are far-reaching issues impacting a huge number of individuals in a variety of ways. The department was also accused of refusing to allow parents to see their child's record in the National Pupil Database or to correct any inaccurate data. In light of these concerns, the ICO launched a compulsory audit into the DFE's data practice. In total, the report issues 139 recommendations for improvement, with over 60% being classified as either urgent or high-priority. According to the audit, the DfE has no formal proactive oversight of any function of information governance, including data protection, record management, risk management, data sharing and information security, along with a lack of formal documentation. This lack of structure means that the department cannot demonstrate GDPR compliance. In addition, the ICO notes that a lack of central oversight of data processing activities exists within the department. The employees at the department have also come under fire, with internal cultural barriers and attitudes cited as reasons for a failure on the DfE's part to implement an effective system of information governance. The audit found that the role with the data protection officer within the department had not been established properly, that little training had been available to employees in data protection law, and what data itself was held by the Department for Education still remains murky, since there's no substantial record of data processing activity. Other points of note include that the DfE is not providing sufficient privacy information to data subjects. The DfE and the internal executive agencies have shown confusion over who or what is a data controller, joint controller or data processor. 
The department hasn't shown any certainty of those who obtain data are controls or processors, and so it's not clear what information should be provided. There's a lateral awareness amongst staff in the department on data protection pertaining to the upping the risk of data breaches. No experts are involved in the creation of data storage and retention record systems. No data protection impact assessments are being carried out in the correct and early stages of cases. And the Privacy Assurance Team are risk assessing projects that they haven't been fully briefed on. So all in all, a pretty damning report. When it comes to storing data with other organisations, the ICO notes that only 12 applications out of 400 were rejected due to an over-reliance on citing public tasks as the legal basis under GDPR for the transfer of information. In a statement, the ICO said the ICO's primary responsibility is to ensure compliance with the law and its policy is to work alongside organisations committed to making the necessary changes to improve data protection practice. The department has accepted all the audit recommendations and is making the necessary changes. For the Department for Education, a spokesperson said, We treat the handling of personal data, particularly data relating to schools and other educational settings, extremely seriously and we thank the ICO for its report which will help us further improve in this area. Since the ICO completed its audit, we've taken a number of steps to address the findings and recommendations, including a review of all processes for the use of personal data and significantly increasing the number of staff dedicated to effective management of data. Furthermore, the department says that training plans have now been created for staff and internal vacancies related to data management have been vastly increased over the last year, the majority of which have now been filled. We have to say from our point here at the GDPR Weekly Show, we find this report very disappointing that a central government department should have so many failings two years after GDPR came into force is really unforgivable. And so we hope that the measures put in place by the DfE will be implemented, will be followed by all staff, and that when the next audit is carried out, it results in a much more positive picture of data handling within the organisation. The Department for Education was not the only government organisation finding itself with GDPR difficulties this week when it was revealed that the Crown Prosecution Service has recorded 1,627 data breaches over the 2019-2020 financial year. According to official statistics, that figure is up from 1,378 in the previous financial year. The data, which is contained in the annual report issued by the Crown Prosecution Service, reveals that 59 data breach incidents were so severe that they were reported to the Information Commissioner's Office. Analysis has revealed that the data breaches outlined have potentially affected up to 1,346 people. It's noticeable, perhaps, that the period from January to March this year saw by far the largest quantity of severe personal data incidents, with 21 data handling incidents leading to the loss of media disks or equipment, as well as an additional 18 incidents of unauthorised disclosure of case information, duly impacting no less than 1,233 people in total. By way of comparison, just 11 incidents of unauthorised disclosure of case information affected 56 people in the period from October to December 2019. It should be noted, perhaps, and this is something for all organisations to bear in mind, that 143 of the incidents recorded were due to the loss of electronic media or paper. In the case of the Crown Prosecution Service, for 22 of these instances, the data has never been recovered. And indeed, of the electronic devices lost by the department, only one has been eventually recovered. The Crown Prosecution Service was keen to state that, although the data may have been lost on devices, that data would have been encrypted, and therefore they do not consider it to be a high risk to the individuals involved. But of course the same cannot be said of any information that's held on paper documents. We are anticipating a further update on this situation 
from the Crown Prosecution Service and as soon as we receive it, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Dubal? Dubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Electronic document signing service DocsGet is notifying customers about a security breach that took place over the summer. In an email sent to customers, the company said an unauthorised third party had gained access to a copy of its database from early August this year. The company said the database contained a snapshot of the DocSketch service dated July the 9th, 2020. DocSketch founder Ruben James said this database contained contact information and form fields related to documents filled out by users and users' recipients. James said the intruders did not access the documents themselves, but they could read what information users had filed inside the documents, such as names, signatures, personal data and even payment card details. In addition, the database also contained login information and user contacts, i.e. persons who'd been asked to fill in documents. Passwords were also included in the data, but DocSketch said the password strings were sorted and hashed, although they've not clarified what algorithm they've used to hash the passwords. DocSketch is now notifying customers who it believes were affected. In case users believe they entered personal financial details inside DocSketch-hosted documents, the company has provided additional steps users can take to protect themselves. James said DocSketch had already secured its system and updated its infrastructure following the August intrusion. He said, we're still working out the details, but rest assured this is our top priority and we're going to continue making significant security and infrastructure updates. The Ardonna Group, one of the UK's largest independent insurance brokers, has suffered a data breach this week. The Ardonna Group was formed in 2017 Following a series of acquisitions in 2018, Ardona brings together best-in-class brands including Autonet, Arrakis, Bishopsgate, Bravo Group, Carol Nash, Geo Underwriting, Price Forbes, Swinton, Towergate and Euris. In a statement, Ardona Group said, We are investigating a cyber incident which has caused disruption across a limited part of the Ardona Group of companies. The incident was identified as a result of the routine comprehensive monitoring we have in place, we immediately took all necessary action, including taking impacted systems offline and have implemented our business continuity plans in the impacted business units to minimise disruption to our customers. We are working with third-party forensic and IT experts to manage the situation and are in the process of carrying out remedial action. If we receive any update from our donor, we will of course bring it to you in the next available edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Southern Ireland now, where a data breach has affected some 630 patients at the University Hospital in Limerick. It's understood that the UL Hospitals Group is writing to 630 patients over a breach of their data at the University Hospital. In a statement released today, the UL Hospitals Group said the data breach relates to patients who had attended the emergency department at the hospital between the 18th and 22nd of April this year. The statement says the data in question was extracted from an automated system used in the emergency department to dispense medication safely. It was extracted without HSE knowledge or approval by an employee of a company which was then supporting the system and not by any employee of the HSE. The information was published online in the form of a file linked from a Twitter account. The file contained patients' names, date of birth and the names of medication dispensed while they were in the emergency department. 
However, the statement said the medications were for the most part those you would expect to be dispensed in the emergency department, i.e. painkillers and antibiotics. The UR Hospitals Group said they became aware of the breach on the 29th of May this year. A spokesperson said that immediate actions were taken by the HSE and by the Hospitals Group to protect patient data. Twitter blocked the link to the data and disabled the account in question. It is understood that the Irish police, the Jada, have been notified and that the HSE obtained a high court order on the 5th of June restraining the individual concerned from communicating confidential information. The breach was also reported to the Irish Data Protection Commission on the 29th of May this year. The group said it was now writing to patients to comply with data protection regulations and to advise that there remains a residual risk of further unauthorised disclosure in spite of the high court injunction that remains in place to restrain the individual from further sharing the data. Where the patients concerned are children, the group is writing to the parents or guardians. It's understood that of the 630 patients involved, some 95 are children. A spokesperson said, We have apologised to our patients in writing for this data breach and for any distresses for cause. We've also set up a helpline and shared these details with the patients concerned. UR Hospitals Group has also convened a serious incident management team to investigate this incident at a local level and take any necessary actions to further secure patient data. Regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show might remember that back in episode 107 we brought you news that Morgan Stanley were to face a legal class action over the failures in their disposal of used computer equipment. Well this week, in addition to the class action, which is still ongoing, Morgan Stanley has agreed to pay a $60 million fine for its repeated failures to adequately protect customer data when disposing of old equipment. The United States Department of Treasury's Office of the Controller of the Currency said this week that both Morgan Stanley Bank NA and Morgan Stanley Private Bank NA failed to make proper precautions to protect customer data when it shut down two data centres for its US wealth management operations in 2016. The bank did not maintain inventory of the customer data on those systems and did not properly oversee the contractors it hired to make sure customer data had been wiped from the old equipment. The bank informed affected customers this July after it was instructed to do so by the OCC and provided two years of free credit monitoring and four detection services with Experian. In a statement, the OCC said, among other things, the banks failed to effectively assess or address risks associated with decommissioning its hardware, failed to adequately assess the risk of subcontracting and decommissioning work, including exercising adequate due diligence in selecting a vendor and monitoring its performance, and failed to maintain appropriate inventory of customer data stored on the decommissioned hardware devices. The OCC said that Morgan Stanley's failures to make sure adequate protections were in place was part of a pattern of misconduct, noting that the bank had a similar situation in 2019 when servers in some branch locations were replaced. Morgan Stanley told some state attorneys, generals, it couldn't locate the older equipment containing unencrypted customer data. It is understood that Morgan Stanley is reportedly considering... No, take two. It is understood that Morgan Stanley is considering appropriate legal action against its subcontractors. Both Morgan Stanley and the OCC were keen to stress that Morgan Stanley paying the fine does not mean that the financial services giant admits or denies the OCC's allegations. The OCC did not impose additional business restrictions on Morgan Stanley on top of the fine because Morgan Stanley had undertaken initial corrective actions and is committed to taking all necessary and appropriate steps to remedy its deficiencies. While $60 million might seem like a big fine, it needs to be put in context with the reported net revenues of Morgan Stanley of some £13.4 billion in the second quarter of 2020 
and full-year net revenue of $41.4 billion in 2019. As we said earlier in this article, the lawsuit against Morgan Stanley brought by its customers is still ongoing, and whenever we have an update on that, we will, of course, bring it to you in the GDPR Week Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Well, at times the world seems to have been brought to a halt by COVID, the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, which oversees the overall management of GDPR across the whole of the EU and indeed currently the UK, although of course that will change from the 31st of December this year, has been busy coming up with some new guidelines and in this case particularly new guidelines around the whole thing of are you a data controller, a data processor or are you a joint data controller? These are questions which we always ask our clients when we're working with them because it's important to understand where in the chain you fit as to quite what aspects of GDPR apply to you and what you need to do in terms of data breaches and so on. But there has been some confusion and so this week the EDPB has issued two new sets of guidelines. At the moment they're just out for consultation. The consultation ends on the 19th of October and so to determine whether an entity is a controller or a processor, the EDPB highlights the necessity to look at the entity that initiates, participates and dictates the decision-making process regarding the data and the means of processing the operations at stake. Now, in many cases, of course, this will be obvious, but where the processing is more complex or where maybe decisions about the processing are shared between one body and another, then the guidelines mandate a closer look at factual circumstances and following the letter of Article 4.7 of GDPR, carrying out analysis on a per-processing basis, the elements pointing towards the stakeholder which determines the purposes, i.e. the why, the means, i.e. the how, of a given processing operation. On this particular point, EDPP clearly stated in the guidelines that the mere determination of the purposes was not sufficient to qualify as a data controller and added that instructions provided by a data controller to its data processor should also be documented so as to clarify the characterisation of the respective roles. Now this is an area where we suspect a lot of organisations will need to do some work because whilst often there's a verbal agreement between data controller and data processor, that's not always followed up by a written agreement whereas the regulations guidelines are now saying that that is necessary. So, according to the EDPB, the decision-making process is at the core of the assessment, and the fact that a contract states that an entity is not a controller, or even the fact that the actual controller would never have any direct access to the underlying personal data, has no influence as to whether an entity would be considered to be the data controller. As for data processors, after reminding that controllers and processors must be separate entities, the EDPB outlines that the requirement to look at the degree of influence an entity may exert over another as a processor should always act on behalf of the controller and never on its own behalf. In some cases, however, a processor may participate in the decision-making process of the data processing pertaining to the means of the processing without prejudice to its qualification as a processor, inasmuch as the entity only participates in the determination of the non-essential means of processing. In that regard, the EDPB disassociated two categories of means. Essential means that these are actions that can only be determined by a controller and which deal with the type of data process, the duration of the processing, categories of data subjects, etc. Non-essential, which can be carried out by the processor, 
deals with more practical aspects of the processing, such as the choice of software, hardware, etc. The guidelines also draw emphasis to Article 28 of GDPR, which says that controllers and processors must formalise their relationship in a written legal instrument with binding effect. This does not have to be a paper document, it can be an electronic form. Such data processing agreement must address all the elements listed, but should not consist in a mere restatement of the regulatory provisions. Indeed, while GDPR provides for general goals to be achieved, it's left to the parties to negotiate the specific and operational implementation to achieve these goals, in particular with regard to the cost of the compliance and the cooperation between controllers and processors, especially in the case of a data breach. Furthermore, the agreement must describe in detail the key aspects of the processing operations, e.g. who are the data subjects and what are the categories of data involved, and the security measures implemented by the processor to safeguard the personal data whilst it's under its custody. While a processor may propose its form, the onus will remain on the controller to ensure that such descriptions are not only specific enough, but also sufficient to ensure its own compliance with GDPR. Finally, as part of the effective exercise of their control over the processing operation, controllers should always be informed prior to the change of engagement of sub-processors by their processor and should in any case have a possibility to object to such appointment. And it's clear that many companies do not fulfil this. Many companies do not offer their clients or indeed their employees a option to opt out of a certain data processor processing their information. Building on several decisions by the Court of Justice of the European Union, the EDPB also provides guidance for situations where two or more entities participate in determining purposes and means of processing, thereby acting as joint controllers. Now, an important lever which the regulations are bringing here is that in making decisions on whether you are a joint controller, it's all about who makes decisions about what happens to the data. Do both parties have shared participation in that process? And importantly, would it be impossible to carry out the operation of validation of data without one of the entities agreeing? And again, further to Article 26 of GDPR, the document reinforces the need for any agreement between joint processes to be in the form of a written agreement. The agreement also needs to specify which of the joint controllers will be in charge of informing the individuals involved in the event of a breach and also in relation to Articles 13 and 14 of GDPR. Even if in reality they retain a certain degree of flexibility in their agreement, joint controllers will need to allocate their respective roles and responsibilities on the basis of the factual circumstances of the data processing. Finally, key aspects of the joint controllership agreement will need to be made available to data subjects as per Article 26.1 of GDPR. In that regard, they will need to designate a unique contact point for the data subject, thereby mimicking GDPR's one-stop-shop principle and ensure that data subjects are able to determine which of the respective controllers are in charge of what compliance applications in a transparent manner, whether it be within the privacy policy or upon request to the data protection officer, the DPO, or a company representative. So what best practices is the document recommending? It's recommending assessing the operational aspects of data collection and processing activities, especially pertaining to the decision-making process to determine whether you are a controller, a processor, or a joint controller. Whether acting as a controller or a processor, reviewing your data protection agreements to ensure that the requirements set forth under Article 28 of GDPR are given their full practical effect, and as the case may be, renegotiate such agreements where necessary. When acting as a joint controller, ensure that a proper joint controllership arrangement has been implemented and not merely a data processing agreement. 
and updating your privacy policy to reflect the essence of any joint controllership arrangement or to designate a key contact to obtain more information related to this arrangement. Now, as we say, these arrangements are out for consultation until the 9th of October, but it's expected that the majority of them will be brought into force by the EDPB fairly shortly after the consultation closes. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids. Thanks Mike. Here at the GDPR Weekly Show we've always recommended that best practice is to have an external data protection officer, a DPO. Now some would say, well of course you're bound to say that because you provide external DPO services and we can't deny that, that's very true. But that's not our reason for making the statement and that's perhaps been brought home this week by a court judgment in Germany. In case you're not familiar, GDPR says that you cannot dismiss a DPO or terminate the contract in the case of an external DPO simply because you've had failings in GDPR and you don't like what the DPO's report says. The case in Germany this week concerned a female employee who was appointed as the data protection officer for a company. The company decided, because of the current times, that it needed to make people redundant. However, it still remained over the threshold of the number of employees where you need to have a data protection officer under GDPR. And just as a reminder, if you have more than 20 employees engaged in the processing of personal information, then it is recommended by GDPR that you have a data protection officer. And if you have over 250 employees involved in data processing, you have to have a data protection officer. Back to the case in question, this lady had been appointed as a company DPO. And I say the company decided to make a round of redundancies, including the lady in question. However, she took the company to court because she argued that whilst they could terminate her contract of employment and make her redundant, they couldn't terminate her contract as the company's data protection officer. The court ruled in her favour, which perhaps gives an even more added level of protection to a data protection officer. So why then do we say it's beneficial to have an external data protection officer rather than an internal one? Well, firstly is that data protection officers must be free to make their report based on their findings under GDPR and not biased by whether they feel that the results of the report will have an impact on their future career within the company. But secondly, because as in this case, although this lady has been made redundant by the company and her job, they say, no longer exists, the court has ruled, okay, she doesn't have to physically come and do any work for you, unless it's in regard to an incident where there is a need for the data protection officer to get involved. But you still need to carry on paying her monthly salary and her national insurance and providing her with paid holiday and sick leave and all those good things. Now clearly in the case of an external DPO that doesn't arise because you just pay a normally a flat monthly fee for the DPO and that's all you pay. But remember that even in the case of an external DPO, you can't terminate the contract just because you don't know what the DPO says. And that's really, really important that people understand that. As I mentioned earlier, we do provide external DPO services here at the GDPR Weekly Show. 
And so if you'd like us to become your external DPO or you'd like to consider us becoming your external DPO and, and have a discussion about the pluses and minuses, then please feel free to contact us via helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and our fully trained data protection officer will get in touch with you to discuss possible ways forward. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.